When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Archive testimony from Franz Ziegler, a rainbow body head researcher, dated February 1st, 1989. Yes, it was Jocasta that started having the dreams first. For her, they'd started in July, though she did not report it to anybody at the time. I think she was worried about being separated from Rao. Rao had taken up too much of her energy. Too much of her time, she must have spent whole days in the observation room even as the rest of us scrambled to have the place prepped for the handover to the brass. The experiments had stopped, and all but three of the subjects had been cleared and returned to general circulation. Yet she still talked to Rao. She was growing tired and afraid, afraid they'd write her up for excessive cognito hazard exposure or some such and send her away. All she wanted was to be here with him, to get answers from him. Eventually it was too much, and she stopped at my behest. It clearly was too much on her. I went in there once or twice and talked with him for a given measure of talk. It's all on the record. I remember leaving from those sessions feeling greatly unsettled, as if I had glimpsed the scene of a great tragedy. I do not know what Joe saw in her interactions with him that made her go back again and again. I tried listening to the tapes. Once as head researcher, I had the authority to do so. But as soon as I played them, it felt like I was on the cusp of committing something profane, like eavesdropping on a confessional. Then I started having the dreams too. Long, plunging nightmares of light and sound, sending me awake with the faint aftertaste of sweetness on my lips, awake with the feeling of the familiar beside the divine. That morning, I moved to my office and dug out two copies of the standard dream report. On the first, I found my pen trembling above the third blank, paralyzed with forgetfulness. The second, I tore and shred. I was convinced the dream was a message, an omen of things to come, but it was not one that was meant for me. I believed its intention, though I did not understand its contents. I believed it without seeking further verification. On this point, I admit my lack of discernment. But belief is a stronger force than any of us realize, sir. You've been here long enough to know that as well as I do. We are who we are because we believe. When Joe told me about her dreams, and that it was of utmost importance that we leave the site before noon, I did not disbelieve her. After breakfast, we left on foot without telling anyone. I asked her if we were escaping some terrible catastrophe. She said that Rao had promised her nobody would be hurt. She also asked if there was a safe place that we could hide in until the events foretold in her dreams had come to pass. I told her about the safe house down at I remembered the place from the initial briefing for the project. They stored backup equipment and supplies here in the eventuality of the site being compromised. We went in one at a time, she first and I second. Inside, she went straight for the equipment closet and strung out a set of electrodes. She turned to me and said, Hook me up. There's no more time to waste. That's a test set. You haven't been conditioned. It's not going to work, I told her. 
She pushed the set into my hands. Then we improvise. Besides, I've read the papers. This is all we need. The rest is just supplementary. My rational mind believed what she was intending to be impossible. I knew from my early days at the project that the procedure would just as likely fail as it was to kill her entirely. But we'd both seen the dreams, and in the light and heat of the dream that I remembered something had reached out then and touched my conscious mind as if to say, this is the only way. I looked into her eyes and saw that she believed that too. We went ahead. In the cupboard, I found a drip feed, a waterproof cassette player with that bright yellow cognito hazard triangle emblazoned on it, and an early version of the electrotherapy machine we'd used for the first tests. Inside the ice compartment of the freezer were five bags of the serum. There was an untouched tank in the bathroom with the packets of salt still sealed. Joe set it up while I went to work programming the machines from memory. It wasn't hard working from the presets and I found myself recreating almost precisely the very pattern on the oscilloscopes that had surely been burnt into my eyes from the long nights of lab work. Any further adjustments would have to be impromptu. But that something stirred again and reassured me of my path. From the bathroom, I heard the sound of the tank's filtration system running. There was the sound of splashing as Joe tested the waters. It's good to go, she called. We had to patch the trodes and drip system through some extension cables so that they could reach the bathroom. I had experience only with the bioelectrical part of the procedure. Joe intubated herself, wincing as the warm saline entered her veins. Just one more thing, she said, producing a marker from her pocket. On the hatch of the tank, she inscribed a twirling eight-sided pictogram in a single careful motion that ended with both ends entwined in its center. Now we begin. I looked away as she stripped and placed the electrode helmet on her head. The tank was custom made with speakers embedded in the sides. All I needed to do was to play from the cassette, cue the drip and regulate the pattern. She entered the tank and carefully shut the hatch. I turned the switch on the drip machine and it emitted a beep, signaling the switch from saline to serum. I knocked twice on the tank, signaling that it had begun. Godspeed, came her muffled voice from beneath the hatch. There was no more fear. When the thrashing began, I found myself stroking the tank and whispering the words I did back then. Simple words of soothing and encouragement. You're strong. You'll hang in there. You're the best of the best. You'll handle this, I believe. The splashing subsided. Her vitals remained strong. I attenuated the pattern, adjusted the last of the drip feed, and sent her under. In reality, we were two rogue employees swept under the dream fervor of an anomaly. But in that moment, surrounded by the hum of the machinery, I felt every bit in control of my rational thoughts. Before my eyes, theta waves began to dance on the oscilloscope screen. Against all odds, I had succeeded, though Joe still had a long way to go. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Archive testimony from Jocasta Simos, esoteric containment specialist, dated August 2nd, 1989. I wasn't prepared to tell this part of my story before today. Now it's almost been a year. I think it's about time the truth came to light. In the tub, I went under, just like Rao had shown me. I'd never been subjected to the procedure before, but I recognized its sensations from the reactions of those that had gone before me. In the tank, it was like my entire body had dissipated into a million pieces floating further and further apart from each other until the feeling of the drips and attachments had faded into the background of the tape track with its ambient binaurals around my ears. Eventually the binaurals themselves ceased to be audible to me. I began to panic when I could not feel my heart beating. The sensation of death encroached all around me. I was alone in the universe. I was me. I was no longer me. Then panic turned into clarity. This was exactly how it had felt to dream those dreams back in July. Just thinking about it now makes me shiver. Now I understood how those first subjects felt when they went under, before the conditioning process had been refined. I had the familiarity of my dreams and my experiences with near-ego death to prepare me for what I saw. But they... they hadn't. God, it must have driven them mad. I suppose it was at this point of the procedure that the subjects were introduced to the instructions. I was aware of the idea of sounds from outside, but I did not hear them with my ears. I knew there would be a tap dripping behind me, or the hum of the drip feed on my two o'clock, but the thought just didn't occur to me to see them. Left unprimed, my mind wandered in a faint copy of my dreamscape, where dim shadows danced amidst vague memories of places that I knew. I drifted for what felt like eternity until I became aware of a hive of shadows, a mass of swirling shapes that I soon recognized as the shadows that had terrified me in the dream. Somehow they were not as terrifying as the dreams themselves, maybe because I was only here as a guest and not its resident and their prime target. They had congregated around a gate of sorts, looking like the arched iris of a massive eye. Inside that gate, there was another space, a space of something as clear and lucid as plain water, where I felt no secrets could lie. I approached and it let me pass through. Then I saw it in the stillness, the shadow bell, framed in the vague memories of the site's fluorescence and containing within it his body. Rao's body, towering before my vision like an ocean. He was so much more massive in person. As I stared, A portion of his eyes swiveled and regarded me, fixing me in their blinding glare. I screamed so loud then that I thought I would wake from the trance, but something had held me within the bell. I did not wake. After a while, I felt no fear, only the recognizable dream sensation of familiarity mixed with death. Yes, I still have dreams, other dreams. Dreams of me killing Rao, dreams of Rao killing the world. Above all is the dream, no, the nightmare of the wheel itself turning endlessly, with my life bound to its spokes, crucified and inseparable. We're all bound to the spokes, every single one of us. It's because we have to be, it's because there's no other way. 
just think whatever powers that remain, that it is not our place to know the manner of our bindings or the other bindings of our possible choosing because Rao did, and we've paid the price for it. I shall declare nothing further. If the committee finds me guilty, I welcome the verdict with open arms. Ziegler turned us in because he knew we had done nothing wrong. And I assure you, sirs and madam, that I will continue believing in that until the day I die. I hope this has been sufficient. I have nothing more to say. View attachment. Extra normal event. B38261. Related documentation. Archived testimony from... Archival Department Manager, Liaison to the Office of 055, dated February 15, 1991. It was Indian intelligence that did us in the research and analysis wing. An armed takeover of that magnitude and severity, who else could it have been? While the contents and exact locations of our sites were only known to our contacts within the Indian administration, the fact that the sites existed at all would have been the equivalent of common knowledge to Indian intelligence. If they had wanted to find us, it would have been a simple matter of tracing logistics and extrapolating from maps. But we were assured that they were under direct orders from then-director Saxena himself not to interfere with our operations. Until then, they had had no incentive to do so. Then after Saxena came S.E. Joshi and Anand Verma, and that's when our troubles started. It was clear as day that we could not have kept SCP-2498 a secret from them forever. 055 promised delivery to the Indians in exchange for safe haven. But they must have known as well as he did that the project would not bear fruit beyond what he already suspected RNAW was capable of. Regardless, aiding parascientific research for non-destructive purposes fell well within the ethical guidelines of the Overseer Council. The creation of 2498 threw all of that out of the window. When it was obvious to us that the project could not continue as it did, we consolidated our records and fed our partners fabrications to keep them at bay. But Anand Verma was not a gullible man. He must have had known through other means, and that was when he decided to strike. The attackers were far from incompetent. I must once again stress the level of preparation and covert knowledge it took to plan an act like this. Firstly, they had known the nature of the site's contents, if only vaguely. They had known of its location and the movements of its key personnel. They had known of the layout of the site's rooms. To all of that, I also add the element of luck. A mere week or two later, and we'd have finished moving the project out of the university entirely. Just as they were far from incompetent, so were we far from unprepared. We had contingencies in place for that day, and those contingencies were executed with flawless aplomb, but they simply weren't good enough. By the mid-1970s, our covert infrastructure had the capacity to send a reaction force to any site in distress within the hour track the assailants, put them in the bag, and retrieve or neutralize any objects they might have taken. What we didn't count on was that in the case of adjunct site 2498, the men didn't matter. All that mattered was the plan. All they needed was half an hour to crash that plane with no survivors. Extra normal event report B38261. Date of occurrence, 
August 17, 1988. Location, Bahawalpur, Punjab region, Pakistan. Description. After witnessing a demonstration of M1 Abrams tanks in Bahawalpur, Pakistan, General Mohammad Zia al-Haq boarded a Hercules C-130B aircraft to return to Islamabad. On board this flight were 37 other passengers, including close associates General Akhtar Abdur Rahman and Brigadier Siddiqui Salik. Arnold Louis Rafael, the United States Ambassador to Pakistan, and General Herbert M. Wassum, the Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. military effort in Pakistan. The flight departed from Bahawalpur Airport at 13.35 hours. At 13.40 hours, the plane was enveloped in a column of light originating from the sun. It remained completely motionless for two minutes, after which the wings of the plane detached and the fuselage fell to the ground, still enveloped within the column of light. No human remains were ever found at the crash site. All passengers aboard were presumed killed. Follow-up actions taken. Though Foundation agents were unable to edit the memories of all witnesses involved, they were able to acquire and suppress all film records of the incident. The incident is publicized by international news sources as a non-anomalous plane crash undergoing investigation. Neither local nor international media ever reported the true nature of the incident, suggesting the presence of a parallel cover-up. Archive testimony from Archival Department Manager Liaison to the Office of 055, dated February 15, 1991. Though the Geneva Accords were signed in April, Pakistan still maintained a sizable stockpile of parascientific weapons courtesy of the United States, eager to arm their allies against the Soviets up north. General Zia's death changed all of that. The change of regime and souring of U.S.-Pakistani ties after the crash led to the eventual withdrawal of the 388th Independent Special Company from Peshawar. Existing parascientific weapons soon proved difficult to maintain without outside expertise. Research hit a dead end. By the end of the following year, Pakistan's forays into weaponizing extra-normal phenomena had all but ceased. The Foundation moved in, just like we had with India. Small, discrete sites under chemical plants and garment factories, and cleaned up the mess. The remaining stockpiles of anomalous assets were eventually seized and destroyed. It was not an easy ride. Shortly after the plane went down, our covert sources immediately picked up on mention of the incident within NATO and Soviet intelligence. I tell you now that our Foundation had never been closer to complete confrontation with a military force than that one point in the war. Reagan was furious. Admiral Kelso was chomping at the bit. We at the office feared a repeat of El Dorado Canyon, even if India would be harder to bomb than a Libyan tent. But we had no idea when or how they would strike. We had no clue. To make matters worse, we had just learned through our department's channels that the attack on 2498 had rendered it all but neutralized. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to us, the USS Vincennes had received direct orders from Central Command to depart from the Andamans and encroach into Indian waters. For 15 excruciating minutes in the Bay of Bengal, there were four harpoon 
RGM-84 anti-ship missiles locked straight onto the INS Virat, with a thousand men on board. God only knows what might have happened if they had armed and fired. It is nothing short of a miracle that Captain Rogers and his men made the choice that they did that day. Never in my career in this office has it been more apparent that discretion above all things is the greater part of valor than all others combined. For most of the world, the war ended at Malta, where an embittered bush made peace with weary Gorbachev, vowing never again to repeat the tragedies that had so defined the recent past. For us, the war ended in Cairo, as Director Stilwell and Actus negotiated our eventual return from exile. To identify the individual factors that led to these successes for peace is a business that I will leave to the historians of the New Age. Regardless, it cannot be doubted that the events of the time, the death of General Zia, the near destruction of the Virat, the bitter conclusion of the Afghan War, the GRUP activation of 1984, had presented the world with a general malaise that deeply pervaded both sides of the conflict. The world had seen leaders at their best, but overwhelmingly also at their worst. Parascientific weaponry had laid bare to mankind the terror that lay at the heart of war. Faced with its sins, war-fatigued America had no choice but to back down. Perhaps the incidents in India had something to do with it. Speaking as one of the few who have had the privilege of the regional theater's front row seat, I like to think that it had. Do I believe the testimony of Jocasta Simos? I don't know if I do, at least in its entirety. But I believe that she acted in good faith. Did she do the right thing? Perhaps her actions did play a part in saving the world from full-blown occult war. Or perhaps they didn't, and she destroyed one of the most powerful anomalous assets that we've ever harnessed in the history of our organization. I don't know, and I don't think we ever will. And I think all things considered that that is for the better.